when it's good versus evil versus psychic? When the streets are paved with gold? When we live life on the edge? That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 178th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, August 21st, and released Wednesday, August 25th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? Well, this week we're going to wander into the markets of Milleros to see what mysterious and magical items have filtered up for sale. Next, we open up our quest logs as Indigo Spectre takes us through the Merry Prankster. After that, we take a short rest and head into the Gnomish Workshop as we try living on the edge of unconsciousness, before finally heading over to the Scrying Pool to see what you all have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a walk over to the Market of Minoros. What if I were to offer you six magic beads? I'm afraid currency is the currency of the realm. Welcome, one and all, to the marvelous Market of Minoros, a roundup of our favorite D&D projects live on Kickstarter as selected by the master of the marketplace, Bloodlake. A perfect way to lighten the burden of all the gold pieces that are burning a hole in your pocket after your latest adventures. So first up this time is Boricubos, the Lost Isles, Latin American Monsters and Adventures from Legendary Games. I actually covered a supplement from Legendary Games just a couple weeks ago. This is a campaign setting and a monster supplement that is based on the mythos of the Arawak peoples, and that's the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean and the South American Isles, and a little bit of the southern tip of Florida. The name of it, Boricubos, is derived from the word Boricua, which is a person of Puerto Rican descent by birth or by heritage. And I really like that they're going into the mythos of different Latin American countries from here. So normally a lot of the Latin American mythos that you hear about is from the Mayans and the Aztecs, and this goes way further. It's going into all of the mythos from pretty much every single South American country. It's going into some of the mythos from Haiti, some of the mythos from Cuba, and that's just really cool. In this supplement, they've added seven new races and a new shaman class. And they have it available for 5th edition, Pathfinder 1st edition, and Pathfinder 2nd edition. So you've got quite a few systems to choose from. The bestiary is 100 pages of Latin American inspired beasties, plus some of the gamified versions of real life creatures, like a giant mantis shrimp. Who wouldn't want to put one of those in their games, am I right? There was an interview this morning with the heads of D&D Puerto Rico, and the lead designer of Legendary Games, Jason Nelson, about what this setting means to the people of Puerto Rico. And one of the things that was mentioned in that interview, if you watch it, it's on the Kickstarter page, is that they were going through the official monster manual for D&D looking for Latin American-inspired monsters, and they only found two of them. So that is one of the reasons why this book came to life. So now this bestiary, like I said, it's 100 pages of Latin American inspired creatures. So that's really exciting. It also has some really solid artwork in it. And I know you guys know how much I love the artwork, right? So the fact that this one's got such great artwork in it just already is a big plus for me. The pledge levels start at $18 US for each of the PDFs or $30 for a combo. They also have $27 US for each of the books in print, or $55 for a bundle of both of them. And the pledges go all the way up to $199 US for a big bundle, including a signed limited edition version of the hardcover, a t-shirt, dice, a special pen, that's a writing pen, by the way, and a listing in the book credits. And they also have a special where you can add on an additional system for 20% off. 
They also have quite a few add-ons available for this, including some virtual tabletop modules and tokens, and any of the Legendary Games' other prints, pretty much, that they have available. And to really give a sense of authenticity to this, they've got contributors and consultants, like I said, from pretty much every South American and Central American country. And that's just, that's just great. It's going to be really well-rounded. And if you are of Latin American descent, I really think that this is just going to be the cherry on top of, of your D&D experience. This Kickstarter is fully funded and many of the stretch goals have been met. It ends on Thursday, September 19th, so you've got plenty of time to back it if you're interested. One thing that I like about this, and this will be common across all of the Kickstarters that we're reviewing this evening, is that this gives you a preview of the supplement, which is really quite cool. So if you're undecided whether you actually want to pledge, check out the preview that's on there, which that's what I did. And a lot of the creatures in there, they are super cool. Now, as somebody who's not from your half of the world, I genuinely cannot say whether these are accurate or things that people would have heard of, etc. But just looking at them, they do make fantastic additions to the Monster Manual. And there's several in there that you could pretty much wholesale swap out for established monsters in D&D, uh, particularly if you were listening to the short rests that we had last time and you stick some yuan tea in there there's a couple of uh giant snakes whose name i i will mess up when i say it but it looks like it's pronounced arrogantakulta who knows um these things would go great in a campaign that features anything serpent like and a bit like dragons they have like multiple ages so they have the regular one they've then got uh, what they call the grandfather which is a huge version of it and comes with legendary actions and all sorts yeah i really liked as Ryu mentioned, I like the art that they're showing even just on the Kickstarter page, especially because it's consistent, because we've seen some Kickstarters where they have very nice artwork, but it's like blatantly obvious they got three or four different artists to do it and they didn't really coordinate stylistically. In these cases, the art all looks consistent, and I I can still sort of tell that different artists worked on different parts, but overall, it's a very smooth transition from one uh, creature and one like character portrait to the other. It's not like a jarring switch between semi-realistic to like comic book style to abstract. So. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the art. And like you said, the monsters are going to be very unique and probably unfamiliar to a lot of people, even from North America. That's always nice just because even though, you know, everybody tries to put a lid on metagaming and so forth, there's still always going to be the phenomenon of someone says, oh, you're facing down a creature that's floating in the air and has a bunch of tentacles with eyes on them and everyone around the table is immediately going okay that's a beholder um <laughs> if you... that's where you're wrong bucko it's a yeah. insert character here yeah in this case it's like you're looking at a creature that appears to be a dog made out of rocks with a bowl on its back and they're going to be going i'm sorry what <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I also really like that this is compatible with Pathfinder and 5th edition. Well, you, you have to pick either or, whether you want it in Pathfinder 2nd edition format or 5th edition format. But it's cool that they're doing it for both. But you can add a second system and oh. when you do your pledge for 20% off. I mentioned that too. Yes, yep. I mean, the, the thing is, Ryu, I'm sure if you give them enough money, they'll probably make you one for 1st edition D&D if you ask them nicely. <laughs> But I it's would just not cool. do that to anybody. Like, that's, that's <laughs> I want just a cool. table. Um, but yes, it should. Uh, I'd like to see more of this. I'd like to see more dual gaming system stuff. Even if it's not Pathfinder 2nd Edition, just because I like Pathfinder 2nd Edition doesn't mean it has to be, but just a good resource that can be used across multiple. Also, I wanted to point out that the estimated delivery for this is september of 2021 for the pdfs and february of 2022 for the physical copies well this week with my pick um ostron you're gonna be pleased to hear that i don't have to say pirate jokes but i know how much you like them so i might do one anyway <sighs> okay <clears throat> why should you always get your ears pierced on a pirate ship 
because financially it's only a that's, buccaneer. Anyway, so <laughs> this week that's that's not where I was going. So <laughs> <laughs> this week, this week, the um, the uh, item that I'm uh, bringing to the table is uh, it's called well, it's it's tricky. It's actually a collection of different rules. So there's these people that have run these Kickstarters for um, a Codex of Good and a Codex of Evil, known as the Corpus Angelus and the Corpus Malicious, uh, respectively. They've now combined them into a single Kickstarter called the Corpus Angelus and Corpus Malicious Codex of Good and Evil for 5th edition. It's quite a mouthful, but basically what it is, as we said, it's part of the Corpus collection. Um, This is basically books for good and evil. Alongside these two codexes, there are also two uh, settings guides, for want of a better term. One for the evil city of Mindabar, the city of Malice, and one for the good city, uh, Loniel, the floating city of angels. That, combined with the codices, make up the four books that are the Corpus Collection. So these books, as you might imagine, because it's a combined Kickstarter, the pricing structure on them does get a little granular. So for example, you could pledge just for a good book, just for an evil book, just for a good book with the evil adventure, just for a evil book with a good adventure, both of the codices, none of the codices, and everything in between. So bear that in mind that there are lots of different pledge levels and you can basically pick what you want from this. Um, But as for the books themselves, they're basically just huge expansions for 5th edition stuff. Um, everything from uh, poison craft to exorcism, you can uh, have options for your players to be promoted to knights and to go through knighthood and everything like that. There are so many additional new what they call archetypes, which is subclasses. There's over 70 of them if you get the two volumes. Uh, Additionally, there's 10 races, so you have things like the Fallen Angel and the Redeemed Fiend, uh, which are in the Evil and the Good Book, respectively. Um, There's all sorts of different rules in there as well. A lot of it is homebrewed, obviously, because this isn't official 5th edition rules, but there's systems for what they call uh, degeneration, which is where the more evil stuff your character does, the more twisted and dark they become. And they have a whole slew of rules on how to manage that. Conversely, they have a system called Devotion, which is where if you're a good character, every time you do something good, you know, you become even more pious than you were before. That one, I think, takes a little bit of inspiration from Pathfinder 2nd Edition's way that they deal with paladins, because paladins have uh, things that if you do it in accordance with your god's wishes, then you get a boon. If you do these things against your god's wishes, then you suffer a penalty and a drawback. So, like I said, they come with uh, all sorts of options for the players. Not just for the players, though. They also come with a lot of stuff for the DMs. There's over a hundred new monsters. These, um, as opposed to Ryu's Kickstarter, these ones are more what I would call traditional fantasy ones. So these are like your grim knights, your... uh, your ghostly ancestors of glory and etc etc there's also 60 npcs that are split between the two books you get a whole list of uh, different deities cults and organizations and it is just an immense uh kickstarter alongside those though what you get aside from the two supplements and the the two books like i said the city of evil and the city of good Included in the Kickstarter are two decks of cards that are useful for... um, It's an item card deck and a spell card deck. You get two sets of dice, one good, one evil. There are 12 dungeon maps, which help you if you're running the adventures. There are 10 minis. Uh, There's also a DM screen. There's two novellas, and there is a soundtrack. So... Remember when I said you can get really granular with this? Well, the pricing breaks down into lots of different tiers. Um, The best way to to sort of go through it is they do a collector's edition, which is $220 and includes everything. If you want to go with just the good set, so that would be, say, the good book and the good uh, city setting, so that's the Corpus Angelus and the uh, Loniel city setting, you will get that plus the STL files of the mini, so you can print them yourself, for $30. If you want to go the evil sets, that's the Corpus Malicious and Minderbar, as well as the STLs, that will set you back uh, $30. If you want to get just the digital of both, 
that will be $50. If you're then after the um, sets that will come with a um, hardback release, those start from 76 and go to 85 depending on whether you want both the adventure and the codex in printed form. Um, finally, they have uh, one which is what they call all print, which is basically all of the books and everything, uh, including the maps that would come in a printed form. It just doesn't include those extras, the card decks, the dice sets, the minis, etc. Interesting note though, the collector's box is the only one that features the actual printed miniatures. So if you're after those 10 minis, you need to go right to the far end. Otherwise, you get the STL files, you can just take them to anywhere with a 3D printer and get them printed up yourself. Um, so this Kickstarter ends on the 16th of September, and the people that are running it are Dream Realm Storytellers. They were founded in Turkey, and they've had six Kickstarters, of which one has been cancelled, but the remainder have all succeeded and have all gone through to print. Um, speaking of uh, speaking of succeeding, they originally asked for a goal of uh, £12,600, and they're currently, at time of recording, at £110,560. So they've, they've exceeded their funding target at least 10 times. It's basically guaranteed that this will be settled and will go through. Um, so... Yeah, that's uh, the the good and the evil codices. Um, do any of these strike your guys fancy? Because I really liked the the corpus books. I'm not wasn't too sold on the city settings, but the actual codices, I really did like these. I think I am very interested in the extra archetypes that they've added. One of the ones that they mention on the page is the Circle of Bones Druid. Mm-hmm. This sounds right up my alley. I want to know everything about this archetype. Yeah, unfortunately, they so they do have uh, demo PDFs, as I was saying. Um, each of the demo PDFs has approximately 60 pages of the full book. So it's, you know, just under a, a third of the whole book. Um, but that isn't one that's included in there. So I can't specifically exactly. speak to that. But from the ones that they have included, like they've listed some barbarian paths and some uh, bard colleges, and they do seem really well balanced. They're not using the, the Tasha's style rules either, so when you come to things like races, race options still say increase your wisdom score, or whatever it is. Uh, but obviously, it's quite easy to retrofit those if that's what you want to do. I also really like the two of the sample races that they show on the actual Kickstarter page. One of them is Fallen Angel, and for a second, it it took me it took me a little bit to figure out what the difference between that and an Awesomer was. But the other one is Redeemed Fiend, and the role playing possibilities with that just have really struck my fancy. I will say, I will say it does look like this is a very like dark, edgy sort of resource at least based on what I've seen. Certainly for the evil one, for the uh, Corpus Malicious, yes, I can get behind yeah. that. Well, it also seems like the the Angelus one is a little bit more, um, like, vengeance of the holy. Oh, okay, I see thing. what you're getting at, yeah. Yeah, like, this This is not, like, you know, the, the evil... It's not uh, necessarily evil versus good. Well, yeah, it's it seems more like it's sort of lawful versus chaotic. Mm, yeah, um, I definitely agree with that. Like I just where I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is with D D by default, like the nine hells are obviously bad, but they also have a layer of like almost dark humor over them. Mm -hmm. And the like the Celestia realm is good with a little bit of ridiculous whimsy this seems to me much more like um like medieval religion level like yes i get evil what you mean. is evil and it's like mm -hmm. good is the better option but they aren't screwing around either i will say i noticed you have to scroll down pretty far on the kickstarter page to notice it but it looks like they are doing a full-blown pledge manager where all of the different 
physical items that you mentioned seem to be available independently. So, for example, if you want, like, a physical copy of the two codices, the maps, and the dice, there is a way you would be able to do that. Um, in that case, I completely missed that. That must be how buried in this Kickstarter it is. Yeah, you'd like, it's, I'm three quarters of the way down the page before I found it. But it looks like you're able to do that, which is nice because they do have some very good individual physical items there. Like, these people definitely went all out. I understand why they're able to pull in over a hundred thousand pounds worth of support for this. Yeah. It is a very nice publication, and the the uh, demos that they give, the previews, they, they are really well laid out. It's like... It very much reminded me of if there was a fifth edition book of how they used to have in third and fourth editions the the manual of the type series except this one is kind of a bit more fifth edition blend with you know it's got races and classes and everything muddled in but it's just the the layout and the way that they go in depth and the way that they expand on everything I also love that they have basically given you the option to make some really wild combinations between your race and your class. And the fact that one of them is a cleric lich, this 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 just sounds like a gem. I love it. <laughs> cleric lich? Lichric. Mm, I'll think of something. Speaking of thinking of things, Ostron. Yeah, so... Many times when we've been going over Unearthed Arcanas in the show, I've mentioned my disappointment at the way 5th edition has been implementing psionics. And I indicated I would have been more interested in a system where you were probably casting most of the same spells, but you were doing it by very different means than the sorcerers and the wizards and even the warlocks. So, uh, Henry Lopez, who is a part of a RPG company named Paradigm Concepts, has put up a Kickstarter, which is covering the 5th edition Codex of the Mind. I should start off by saying that Paradigm Concepts is a third-party publisher that produces their own setting for 5th edition, which is called Arcanus, or possibly Arcanus, depending. Uh, subtitled The World of Shattered Empires. So, on the face of it, this Codex of the Mind is meant to integrate with that setting. But it's still based on the 5th edition rules, so they are compatible with 5th edition D&D without too many tweaks. That said, this is an entirely new system. They take the classes that they've made, of which there are going to be three, and they have 50 subclasses, which some of those are for the three base classes that they created. Others are for the existing classes that already are present in 5th edition. And I think they have some for custom classes that they made up for their Arcanist setting. So it may not be completely compatible. But what this does give you access to is a completely new system of mechanics for spellcasting that makes psionics work very, very differently from magic. They have a sample PDF that you can take a look at, and it includes basically the outline of a class and a subclass that are using psionics and they give a very I don't want to call it high level because it's not but they give a substantial preview of what their psionic system is about without giving you all of the details and it's enough to give you an idea of how it works the plus side to this I will say this is a complete overhaul of how casting spells works and how characters will manifest magic. It says that it's somewhat similar to the Warlock. I would say that's only a tenuous link at best. So it is a complete rework of the casting system. Someone using psionics will be doing something very different from 
people using regular spellcasting if you use this system. Downside, of course, this is a completely different system of casting, and it is not simple. I won't call it overly complex, but you definitely have to read through it, and there are key pieces missing from the sample that make it so you really need the full resource to use it, but there's enough to give you a sense of how it's sort of working, and I, I'm really intrigued by the way they set up psionics in this. So if you're someone that's been looking for a more crunchy, more unique implementation of psionics that does more than what Wizards has done, I would definitely suggest checking this out. In addition to the full suite of psionic rules, uh, they've got sort of the standards that you would expect for a resource like this, backgrounds and feats that apply to psionics, uh, along with equipment and magic items that are themed around the same thing. Uh, the Kickstarter ends on the 13th of September. It has not quite met its pledge level. Uh, as I'm looking at it, they want 25,000 US dollars. They have 24,200 or so. So I'm most like if a decent number of people listening to this podcast take an interest, it'll probably push them over. Uh, the $25 US pledge level will get you a PDF. $50 will get you the PDF rules and the print version. Uh, and the resources have, as with most of the other resources we've covered this evening, uh, very nice art. And like the cover pages on this are really nice. Uh, the images that are included in the sample PDF are also very good. They have a, I would sort of call them almost a space fantasy feel to them. Uh, they aren't really sci-fi, but they definitely go heavy into the magic effects and the glowing features on everything. Like there are a couple of group shots of characters and almost everyone has something on them that's glowing with some sort of color. Uh, and pupils are apparently optional for a lot of species in this setting because almost everybody has eyes that are just solid colors of something. Anyway, uh, there are obviously much higher pledge levels. Uh, most of them, however, link into their Arcanist system as a whole, so it will give you access to other resources and other add-ons that apply more specifically to their setting rather than giving you more rules that are universally applicable. I mean, again, this Arcana setting is based directly on 5th edition, so in theory, anything applicable to it would also be portable over to a 5th edition D&D game, but it's a little less like Lennon's resource where a lot of the add-on things are sort of universally useful and attractive. But if you're interested in getting your hands on a copy of this, the prices we've already mentioned, unfortunately, they're definitely resources that are in production because they aren't expecting the PDFs to be ready until August of 2022. And the hard copies are expected to follow the month after. So you do have to wait a bit to get your hands on this. But if you've been looking for a crunchy, more involved psionic system that's put together by people who seem to know what they're doing, I would definitely suggest checking this out. I mean, you say crunchy and more in-depth. It's actually not that bad. And I think it fits with the 5th edition mythos very well. No, I mean, I didn't think it was that bad, and I think they did a really good job. If you know anything about how psionics worked, particularly in, like, 2nd edition or 3rd edition, I think they did a very good job of taking the feel of that system and implementing it. But mm. I also know there are a lot of players who have a hard enough time grasping the difference between how sorcerers cast spells and how warlocks cast spells. And if you are one of those people, this system will 
shut you right down because it does not work the same way as the Vancian magic of D&D at all. I definitely agree with that. I was going to bring up that before, when you were talking about how you wanted psionics to be, I honestly did not understand because to me, it was just another form of magic. And just from the sample of this supplement that we've been given privy to, now I understand what you were talking about. This answers so many of my questions. Yeah, and on that note, the sample that they give you actually gives you enough that you could create a character and run it to try the system if you're unsure about pledging for it. Yeah, I just, I noticed in some places there were like additional questions that I had and they ref, the the sample says, oh, check the psionics rules on this page, which we obviously didn't give you because you don't Mm -hmm. have the full resource. I think you could like probably for a one shot get away with running a character using those sample rules and get a feel for how it works but I would hesitate before trying to run a whole uh, campaign with this character oh yeah I mean this is this is definitely like treat the PDF as unearthed arcana but otherwise yeah. yes yeah and on that note I feel that this has actually done a better job than wizards did with their implementation of the mystics in any any of the forms well like I said this is and like Ryu pointed out, this is what I've been wanting because the actual spells that they're casting are the same, but they are getting there from a completely different angle than the regular magic spellcasters are. Links to Barikibos, the Corpus Collection, and Codex of the Mind can be found in our show notes. And now that we've spent our coins and our bags of holding are full, let's open up our quest logs as Indigo Spectre takes us through the Merry Prankster. So where are we going? It better not be any place dumb. I mean, pub. Greetings, brave adventurers. I am Indigo Spectre, and I'll be your dungeon master for this evening. Please join me at the table for the next few minutes as I introduce you to an adventure. You find yourself in a small, quiet town of Shireen. It is off the beaten path, a small village of simple folk, and a good place to share some much-needed rest from adventuring. Now, when I say quiet town, that's only during the day. In the evening, the town comes to life with music from three different taverns. These taverns are the only reason people outside the town have any idea it exists. Whether you stumbled upon Shireen or sought out the nightlife, you will soon find that things in town are more, and less, than meet the eye. Our adventure this week, The Merry Prankster, written by Rebecca Alette Fincher, is a module for three to six characters of levels two to four. As the title implies, not everything in this small town nestled in the woods is as it seems. I took a group of six players with level four characters through this adventure. A Berserker Barbarian, Assassin Rogue, Way of Long Death Monk, Twilight Cleric, War Mage Wizard, and a Hexblade Warlock. This adventure took my group about three hours of playtime, most of which leaned heavily toward roleplay. My players all brought characters that were designed heavily toward combat since that had been what we were used to playing recently, but after only a minute or three of acclimating to the setting, we found ourselves roleplaying easily and leaning into the vacation from questing vibe I had chosen this particular module for. The story begins with the adventurers arriving at the village. At first glance, everything seems to be as expected, and they soon find oddities around the town that intrigue them. Piles of gold sitting in the streets. Shops only accepting silver and copper coins. Certain townsfolk wary of outsiders, while others welcome the party cheerfully. My group spent a good portion of the session role-playing interactions with town people, shopkeepers, and investigating the strangeness they found, and generally sticking their noses in places that they didn't go. Shenanigans surfaced, hijinks happened, and mirthful merriment materialized before our very eyes. As the party soon discovered, The gold was gold, but also not. The music that started as evening arrived was inhumanly appealing. It also started to jump around town and send everyone on a merry chase. Most of my players had fun engaging with the town itself while occasionally moving toward the plot. As evening came around, the tavern started up their music and revelry commenced. And as adventurers do, the party couldn't just leave well enough alone and enjoy the music and merriment the town had to offer. The investigation took a strange couple of turns and the party ended up butting heads with few people who liked things to remain as they are. Eventually, they confronted the culprit of the mischief who ultimately got away, possibly to come back again in the future for more pranking. This module provides mechanics for its unique elements, which we had a lot of fun engaging with, but I will keep quiet here about the specifics because of the spoilers for the mystery. There is one unique creature stat block included, however the rest of the content is a brief and high-level overview. It relies heavily on the DM expanding on the nine NPCs presented as a small paragraph each all fit onto one page of the module, as well as any other townsfolk NPC the players may require. 
Although there is one expected short combat, it is possible to complete this adventure without any at all. It can serve as a welcome reprieve in any campaign that has been combat heavy up to that point. And the town is generic enough, it can drop into almost any Forgotten Realms-like setting. This module is written as a setting with characters and a small mystery to provide the DM a playground rather than prescribe a course of plot points to navigate. If you want to roleplay through a quaint and quiet town with a very active and merry nightlife, this is a great module to create a setting for shenanigans. The Merry Prankster is currently available on the DM's Guild for $2.95, and as always, links will be available on our show notes. And now that our quest is complete, it's time to take a short rest and head into the Gnomish Workshop as we try living on the edge of unconsciousness. You are the eventuality of an anomaly in a harmony of mathematical precision. It is not unexpected and thus not beyond a measure of control. Hey, anyone here? Please state the nature of the mathematical inquiry. Oh, good, Lennon. Maybe you can help us with something. Oh, look at the time. I need to go and dive headfirst into a gelatinous cube. So, when I said maybe you can help, what I actually meant was, get your pasty bald self in here, you're helping. Look, my charisma may have increased as a warlock, but I still can't help you with installing things in the machine. My physical chassis does not require any modification at this time. The killer DM wishes to delve more into the subject of unconsciousness. Oh, I get to help with that? I'm pretty sure I still have enough of a strength score to swing a chair. Mm-hmm. Better be careful which chair you grab. Well, I wasn't going to use one of the nice ones. I believe the issue in question can be reviewed without the application of violence. Do we have to? That never happened. What never happened? Exactly. Laser Light Show, what have you got for us? If you consult the output crystals. As previously reviewed, while there are numerous and varied ways to reduce characters in D&D to zero hit points, actually killing them is an unlikely occurrence unless the dungeon master makes it a point to aim for that goal. This necessarily results in the frequent scenario of characters being left in a state of unconsciousness. For Exhibit A, see Ostrom. In point of fact, the type of unconsciousness affecting my creator is actually atypical to the usual condition. As the process involves removing his astral being from his body, the body has gone into a sort of stasis, preventing aging and the need for food and air. The body could theoretically be deposited in a basin of non-toxic, non-corrosive liquid, and still remain functional even if left for a length of time that would ordinarily be problematic. Put him down... Oh, you keep ruining all my fun. Anyway, let's review the basics. When I drop characters to zero HP, because you know that's going to happen as often as possible, they immediately fall unconscious. To start with the obvious stuff, that means they drop whatever they're holding, fall prone, and lose the ability to move or speak. However, everyone with the mind-melting magic and poison needs to calm themselves, because those are actually the only saves affected by the status. Apparently blood loss means you can't lift anything or get out of the way of an advancing slug, but you can still recite multiplication tables in a pinch. I've seen him do it. It's not pretty. Okay, I just had the same thought as you at the same time again, and that really needs to stop. I'm blaming you. Anyway, it should again be obvious, but unconsciousness means incapacitation, which means no actions or reactions. The reason incapacitated is called out, rather than adding it to the list of things along with not moving or speaking, is that incapacitation refers to the separate condition that means any concentration spells stop. This is why you always incapacitate the bard first. The other thing that unconsciousness does is it automatically grants advantage to all attack rolls against that creature. That means even if you're a ranged character, you've still got a decent chance of hitting an unconscious creature because the disadvantage from them being prone is cancelled out by the automatic advantage. Even still, it's worth running in close because any attack that hits where the attacker is within 5 feet is an automatic critical. Now, why would automatic criticals matter? After all, if something is unconscious, it's already at zero HP, right? Well, to start with, there are a few things other than damage that cause the condition. The sleep spell is one of the more obvious ones, but also any magical construct subjected to an anti-magic field that fails its save is considered unconscious in terms of the rules. Both are cases where you've got an unconscious creature who still retains a good portion of their original hit points. 
However, given that the overview began from the perspective of player characters being unconscious, information shall focus on that scenario for the time being. While it is considered a sign of a particularly malicious dungeon master, the potential damage that could be inflicted from an attack on an unconscious character means it is tactically imperative to remove the character from potential harm. Automatic criticals would theoretically double the damage taken by the character, and the threshold of death being immediate if a character suffers damage in excess of a zero that equals their hit point total becomes much more likely when the character is beginning from zero. The subject of death saving throws has been reviewed previously and shall not be dissected again at this point, except to note that the situation where a character succeeds on three saving throws, or is otherwise stabilized through the use of a medicine check, or a spare the dying spell, merely eliminates the need for further saves. The character remains unconscious as long as their total health continues to be zero. So even though most people use healing spells to fix the problem, it's worth keeping in mind getting a character back on their feet after I've given them a love tap is technically a two-step process. First, they're stabilized but unconscious, then they need healing to become conscious again. Giving them any amount of healing solves both problems, but if the cleric's tapped out, you used your last healer's kit to stabilize your buddy, the barbarian drank all your healing potions while dancing the mambo with the purple worm, and the only other character with healing spells is the one on the ground, it means you either have to make sure the entire area can be made safe for an hour, and I'm not letting you do that, obviously, or somebody has some extra weight to carry. None of this applies to people that are asleep, by the way. While a sleeping person is unconscious, they aren't there as a result of being at zero HP, so it's a lot easier to get them up and about. I usually use a dagger. That said, there's a bit of a devil's choice if things are going sideways while someone's having a lie down. It's difficult to find rules that specifically relate to sleeping creatures outside of the spell's sleep. But that spell does say that if you want to wake up a creature in a way that doesn't do damage, it requires an action. So you have to figure out if your action is better spent making attacks against the charging gnolls or waking up the bard. And really, what is Roseanne the Rockets going to do anyway? Break a banjo string at them? In short, whether they're dying or not, it's a good idea to make sure characters who are unconscious get that fixed sooner rather than later, because things will be a lot better for them if it is. Moving on from the nerve-wracking scenario of a player character sitting at 0 HP, it is also possible for NPCs to be rendered unconscious. There is of course the scene of the rogue sneaking into the barracks, or a bard stealthing into a bedchamber… really? Comparative review of anecdotes suggests the bard's activities are at least the second most common occurrence of a player character encountering a sleeping non-player creature. Okay, there's… there is so much to unpack there. Anyway, sleeping NPCs are in the same situation as sleeping player characters in that they're unconscious. However, there is a point in the rules that has caused a few debates around some tables. The rules for the unconscious status specify that the creature is unaware of their surroundings. This has caused a number of measured and perfectly reasonable discussions about whether that meant characters could not bother with stealth sneaking through that sleeping barracks, or conversely if a spell that required characters to hear them would work if they were asleep, since they are totally unaware, per the rules. When Xanathar's Guide to Everything came out, it expanded on this a little bit by granting that sudden loud noises can wake sleepers, and that a character with a passive perception of 20 would be awoken by loud whispers if they were within 10 feet, but unfortunately that still leaves a huge amount of leeway for interpretation. For all practical purposes, the determination of what activities will or will not wake sleeping individuals is the purview of the Dungeon Master. They will dictate the parameters of the encounter, and if there is disagreement, the player will be severely stripped, beaten, and chased around the exterior of the building by Rabbit Edge. I'm sorry, what book was that in? I was informed this is the new paradigm for encouraging player cooperation at the gaming table. What? Just continue. The situation of an unconscious non-player character whose HP total has reached zero is an unusual one. By default, it is assumed that any antagonistic creature reduced to zero HP in combat is rendered in. A partial explanation for this is to reduce bookkeeping responsibilities assigned to the dungeon master, and additionally reducing complications for players. The alternative is to have the dungeon master making and tracking death saves for a number of creatures each combat encounter, 
and then presenting the players with the possibility of unconscious rather than dispatched enemies at the end of an encounter, with the subsequent moral dilemma of how to approach that reality. If you want to run a game like that because you think making your players wrestle with the reality that they're mass murderers every fight is fun, or makes the game have deeper meaning or whatever, go enjoy yourself. But there's no way in the Nine Hells you're getting me to do that kind of paperwork. However, there's always time for torture. If players want to keep an enemy alive after a battle so they can string them up and bleed them slowly while asking questions about swallows and favorite colors, there are rules for that. Well, rules for the unconscious bit. For some reason, they don't see the need to design rules around how to torture people for information. Anyway, the rules state that if a creature is reduced to zero HP by a melee attack, the attacker can opt to knock them unconscious rather than kill them. Now, again, there's a lot of gray area. If someone walks up with a mundane sword, it's easy enough to assume they use the flat side of the blade or the little knob at the end rather than the pointy bit. Paladin charges forward on a horse and scores a critical hit with a mace that's also been supercharged with the glowing power of the Paladin's massive ego. I question how exactly that results in someone being unconscious, as opposed to their head being driven like a golf ball. Same thing with the cleric manifesting the literal essence of death and slapping someone upside the head. But that's what the rules say, so unless you want to make non-lethal attacks something that's really hard for the characters to manage, that's the way it works. Another unfortunate omission from a storytelling point of view is the knock the guard out in the hallway scenario. By the letter of the rules, the only way to knock a creature unconscious is to drop them to zero HP. For any creature over CR1 or so, that's going to be difficult for any character to do in a single hit. Rogues are actually slightly better at it, because that makes sense, but even still, at level 4 a rogue with a rapier and sneak attack is only averaging about 16 damage without rolling a natural 20. A challenge rating 3 archer patrolling around has 75 hit points. You'd probably need the entire party to pile on the damage in order to drop them to zero, and that's well out of the range of a sleep spell's basic power as well. Again, if the characters or the DM are counting on someone quietly sneaking through and knocking out the guards in a single hit along the way, you either have to come up with custom rules for it, or the DM has to put a lot of low CR creatures on guard duty. In the event that a creature is rendered unconscious through non-magical means and remains stable at a zero hit point value, adjudication is relatively straightforward. The player's handbook for 5th edition states such a creature will regain one hit point after 1d4 hours of in-game time. Therefore, while recreating the scenario of a simple stealthy attack rendering a guard unconscious is somewhat difficult to achieve with 5th edition's game mechanics, those same mechanics do readily support the state of affairs wherein a creature is deposited in a storage room and assumed to be a non-factor in continuing operations. In such situations, however, it behooves participants to recall that any amount of damage sustained by the unconscious creature will immediately destabilize their condition and require further death saves. Also recall, death saves are cumulative between long rests. If the creature failed two saves prior to stabilization and was then injured, requiring another immediate save, they are in the unenviable position of facing permanent death after failing a single saving throw. Also recall that a non-stable character taking any damage immediately fails two death saves. Combined with the aforementioned accumulation of failures, it is recommended that any characters assigned the task of transporting an unconscious individual ensure they are both capable of transporting said body without difficulty, and that the path of traversal is relatively clear of obstacles. Yes, carrying the unconscious person over one shoulder and killing them because you took a corner too fast isn't a good look. Admittedly hilarious, but not a good look. I think we can wrap this up with a reminder for the DMs out there. You are effectively the god of death in your games, as you are the god of everything else. So of course, feel free to tweak these rules when and however you wish. For example, the game doesn't really have a mechanic for chokeholds either, and I know that's another way action heroes like to make people take an involuntary nap. However, if you want more unconsciousness in your games, there's probably going to be extra work involved for you. Or you can just have Ostron run it. Okay, so I need to know, why did you want to look into unconsciousness anyway? Well, I 
Well-meaning kidneys are apparently even better if you get them from a live donor, and I hear Gath has been getting uppity about all the resurrections and healings you force him to do, so I wanted to know if nephilimectomy could be done when he's like this. I believe the correct term is nephrectomy. And I believe the correct term is no. You are not taking Ostron's kidneys every time Rostro turns on. And he'd still be dead. I'd only take one of them, then I just grab the other the next time he dies. That cuts down on the resurrection. It's really for Gath's benefit, you know. It would represent a more stable availability curve for the organs in question. There is nothing stable about this. <laughs> Look, I'm going over to the scrying pool. If Ostron's not over there in two minutes, I'm going to send Ray Ray in to check on him. And good luck to you if she finds you elbow deep in Ostron's stomach. There you go, ruining my fun again. What news from the north? Dryness of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, what's your stance on D&D's canon? Did the blog entry clear things up for you? Were you hoping for more information and clarity? Or do you even worry about things being canon at all? Also, how do you feel about the way D&D Beyond is progressing? Will you be missing the Unearthed Arcana features? How do you feel about containers? And finally, minis. Do you want those new WizKids minis coming out for Witchlight and Critical Role, or are you browsing through the Dragon Trapper offerings for weird mashup monsters? Marty's MIA Meat Wagon rolled in on Discord to say hello, wise adventurers. Canon. Ugh. As a DM, and I know this isn't the case for everyone, I don't feel any of the burden which Perkins mentions. Mostly because my players aren't clown helmets and they know the only people whose contributions matter to my game's canon are the ones who are gathered around that virtual table. In trying to make everyone happy, I feel like Wizards of the Coast consistently makes no one happy. There's time and effort required in digging into the archives to update or rule on things or make elements unproblematic. And I can't blame them for wanting to put their current staff to work on making new things. But it seems a little disingenuous to be establishing and recognizing a single canon for this edition of D&D, while not providing any navigation whatsoever through the back catalog of sourcebooks for previous editions, which they're still more than happy to sell you digitally. I think the offensive street name anecdote is actually quite telling. Perkins writes, When we updated the map for Waterdeep Dragon Heist, we gave that street a new name. The old name was never good to begin with, and does not withstand the test of time. I think there's more to being a steward of a game and its stories and culture than running a find and replace. In the real world, time passes and problematic place names get changed. Part of me would have loved to have seen an in-world name change for that street, but I doubt they'd ever embrace that sort of accountability. I'd love to see D&D take some bold steps in a clear direction, something we can all get behind like do evil, sacrifice humans, snakes rule. Spectre on Discord says, I have a nitpick with D&D Beyond iterative design and rollout. The features I want most are never in the first few rollouts. The containers are great for what they are, but the two things I want them most for, putting all my custom clutter into and sharing between characters, is yet to be rolled out. Okay, rant over. I really do like the containers, and I'm looking forward to continued improvement. I did like the UA on D&D Beyond, but it makes a lot more sense to put resources toward permanent features and improvements than to things that have as much chance of being scrapped as sticking around. I think the decision is a good one. And Rebel writes in on Discord and says, Good show, guys. Thanks. Community question one, canon. I consider canon the base tapestry upon which my players write their story and results occur as a consequence of their story and actions. If you worry that you are going off canon, you are simply restricting yourself and your players and seems to counter to the Gary Gygax intent. Community question two, D&D Beyond. Good, now the D&D Beyond team can focus on improving the product instead of flailing around and supporting Wizards beta testing. Yeah, that's a bad take, but sue me. And Electric Luguru on Discord wrote in to say, I'm going to side with Wizards of the Coast a bit in my take, but it's because I know they know they cannot make everyone happy no matter their decisions. First off, let's look at the scope of lore in existence. It's so deep and sometimes convoluted that even your research beholders miss information. Secondly, if they were to say something like, if we don't say anything, just go by 3.5, all the 4th edition fans will be upset. On top of that, when they do finally get to something and change it, there'll be a loud group complaining about how they said the 3.5 lore is canon and why'd they change it, etc, etc. It's a no-win situation, and I respect the route they took. 
Perkins said that only the Dungeon Master's Guide, Player's Handbook, and Monster Manual are canon, because when you think about it, the second you start playing any adventure or setting guides, you're making your own canon. Who lives, who dies, and how NPCs are affected change even when the same group plays a different season of Waterdeep Dragonized. Players are just as responsible for setting canon as the DMs, sometimes even more so. Yes, a DM can prevent a major NPC from dying to preserve the story, but some will allow those things and change or create new things as the campaign progresses to fill holes. I honestly think not naming anything as use this as canon is the smartest choice. This allows for Eberron fans or Ed Greenwood fans to use all their extras non-Wizards of the Coast material or really any extra third-party material with Wizards Blessing. I know it's not a popular decision, but no answer they gave would have been, so I think they made the best decision for the situation. Phoenix on Discord says, Nothing is canon in D&D. According to Mr. Perkins, it's all up to the DM's discretion. I just wish that they would be direct when they put out releases like this one. It's the middle-of-the-road, take-no-sides approach that I don't like. Most of the time I hate it when Perkins says it's up to the DM, but in this case I agree. By the way, how can you say the Player's Handbook is canon when you change the basic function of the Player's Handbook by changing how characters are created? I never understood the UA for Beyond. It seems like a lot of work for something that probably won't exist in a hot minute. I'm not a big fan of pre-painted minis, and much prefer Bones miniatures. I would say Hero Forge, but they're too expensive. And Tomasthenes on Twitter says, I love containers, but mostly Docker. And you, sir, are a nerd, and we love you for it. Anyway, going back to everybody else's, unless anybody really wants to discuss the merits of containerized systems like Docker or Kubernetes. No? No. Cool. All right, going back to everybody else's feedback. Um, looking at what Marty said about how um, Wizards of the Coast consistently makes no one happy, I've often heard that that's actually the sign of a good compromise is when no side is happy with the result. So, maybe? Maybe, but there's, there's a difference between nobody getting what they wanted and dodging the issue, which I personally feel is more what they did there. Because I agree with what everybody, for the most part, was saying in that I don't think the complaint about canon is mostly referring to, like, people running through Waterdeep Dragon Heist or their own campaign and having things go differently from the way it, quote, officially went. Mm -hmm. For me, the issue with canon is establishing a common starting point. So, you know, the DM doesn't have to write up 20 pages of establishing lore for the world before the campaign. I tend to do that, right. but that's me, and I have a number of things unique to my DMing style that I have been told are variously masochistic or insane. And that's sort of the point, is if there is a consistent canon it means that somebody running D&D in the Forgotten Realms doesn't have to spend extra time going back through and saying, okay, the Elminster in this is the Elminster up through 5th edition. The Mordenkainen is the one from Greyhawk in 2nd edition. The, you know, events of Waterdeep Dragon Heist haven't happened yet in Waterdeep, etc., etc. So... With them saying basically nothing is canon and everything is canon, that means the DM still have to jump in there and say, okay, I'm interpreting the Nine Hells based on this, I'm interpreting Faerun based on this, I'm interpreting etc, etc, etc for everything that applies to the campaign. And I feel like it would be less work if they just said, hey, all of this stuff is our starting point. And yes. they did say, look at the player's handbook and the monster manual, but there is a lot of content outside of that that applies. Like Tasha's Guide to Everything, it's optionally non-optional. Although, again, sort of answering to that, I think then that you will have the issue that Electric Lou said, which is if they say, just go look at 3-5, then everybody who played 4th isn't going to like it, etc. So I, I, I do also get why they're not doing that, but it annoys me that they're not doing that, just... Just admit fourth was a mistake, and yeah, everybody but, will be happy. I mean, it wouldn't even... <laughs> Not everybody will be happy. I wouldn't even need them to go into that much detail. 
Like, even if they just said, hey, if we haven't specifically put something out about it, then any previous source that mentioned it is still valid as a source for canon. That would be enough, which, again, I feel like most DMs are probably doing that anyway. Right. But just the extra reinforcement from the the final arbiters would be helpful for a lot of DMs, I think. Yeah. I also, as someone who lives in a city where I think the thing that we are most famous for over your side of the pond in, you know, recent events was taking a statue and throwing it in the harbour. Um, <laughs> the suggestion... I remember that. Yeah, it was uh, pretty exciting. The plinth is still empty, by the way. They haven't put anything back up there yet. And the statue itself is in a museum right now. Anyway. Well, yeah, they have to social distance. Ah, uh, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. Um, going back to what Marty was saying there about having an in-world event to change the names of it, I get it, and I think that that would be quite a cool thing to have. But I then also feel that that goes against what Chris was saying about canon is just not everything that's already published, if you see what I mean. Like, that would require a commitment to canon to say, hey, if you're running a game in Waterdeep, you need to read Waterdeep Dragon Heist because it's got these events in it that are important. On the other end of the spectrum, I can remember when I went to PAX one year, there was a DM who said that she required all of her players who were going to play in her campaigns to have read three novels. Wow. So they're familiar with the setting and background of what's going on. Was that just for a one-off PAX game, or was that like an ongoing thing? No, 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 that was, that was her describing her quote, oh, regular game. Sorry, I thought you so meant it was like a table, and I'm like, who's going to do that for an afternoon's D&D? No, 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 this, this was not a, a PAX one-off. This was her talking about her regular gaming group. Wow, okay. Even still. The one time that I ran an Amberon module, I went to Lennon and said, hey, give me the cliff notes on this real quick, and he gave me enough that I could run on, and I think I pulled it off pretty well, and my players didn't really know the difference so yeah yeah if anybody wants cliff notes on ever actually i shouldn't say that on public record scrub that get rid of it no <laughs> oh. it, serious no though if anybody does ever want to know just join the discord we'll always answer questions yeah but that's that sort of gets to what i'm saying is that when you asked lennon he had resources and or could get resources that were hey this is the latest stuff that has established eberron yeah yeah. Take a look. And I feel like for a large number of places in D&D, that doesn't exist. We don't have a resource that establishes how the Underdark works, how the Feywild works, how Celestia works. How Waterdeep so works for the players. Right. The DM's going to have to explain all of that to them. I mean, there is the Enchiridion, which is player-friendly. You could give that yeah. to them, but... When I say you could give that to them, you're going to have to acquire it digitally, maybe through D&D Beyond, or get a silver edition, or chop your books up. That's Exactly, because you know. it's all in the same volume. And that brings us to this week's community questions. Are you hoping to run your own rendition of Angels and Demons? Do you need more authentic Latin American content in your D&D games? Have you been agreeing with Ostron about psionics for all these years? And tell us about a memorable experience of being on the edge of unconsciousness. Stories from D&D campaigns preferred, please. Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 178th entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 179th entry on September 1st. But before we go, we want to know. For you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. The show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. And make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and anywhere else that good podcasts can be found, or through our feeds at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Grab yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your tables, but will also help out your favourite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy, and be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. 
You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with your friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all of your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our head scribe, Gath Memvar, our social media mage, Ray Ray, our web wizard, Mark, our dungeon master and adventures league correspondent, Indigo Spectre, our master of the marketplace, Blood Lake, and our audio alchemists, Mikey, Brenwyn, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sobby, Rat Queen, and Amber Squirrel Craning. Vinsvep, for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vinsvep.bandcamp.com, and Lo of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair, and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. takes it we're safe this is lennon market of Manara sync one this is ostron market of Manara two pathfinder first edition yeah first edition no (laughs) however everyone with the mind melting magic and poison needles to calm themselves because the wait that's needs needs okay that makes way more sense (laughs) Anyway, and uh, uh, see, <laughs> told you. Didn't realize it was that disturbing. Anyway, no, it's the base. Telling you, it's all the base. Anyway, <clears throat> this has caused a number of measured and perfectly This has caused a number of measured and perfect. Hold on a second. I think I need to read this sentence a few times. <laughs> Not out loud. It does end with the phrase, however, okay. there's always time for torture, so. <laughs> that there should also be a comma there. That will that will help. Okay.